Hello, listeners. We here at the Foxhole Podcast are so grateful for your continued support and listens. Because we love you, we've made you a special discount code for our upcoming play, The Ninth Door. The discount code ROGER takes $10 off the $20 ticket price. So remember, if you're in L.A. this October, come by The Ninth Door and remember that discount code ROGER. And welcome back to another week, another episode, fun-filled episode of the Foxhole Podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm your host, Brock, and I have Marcus here again. Um, What's up? Fantastic, man. How you doing, brother, from the other side? I'm doing um, good. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I had a... Uh, so I rarely dream anymore, mm. um, but I was exhausted after work last night. And I... Uh, what time did you get home? Nap. So I got home like probably eight o'clock this morning. Oh wow! I took a nap, and uh, ended up uh, biting me in the ass. But I had the craziest, most vivid dream, uh, and I was wondering if maybe uh, you could uh, interpret it for me. <laughs> no, yeah, but sure. I just wanted to let you know what happened. It was it was crazy, man. Because I woke up and I told my fiance like what had happened, and I I dreamed that I was in this office building, um, with. And for some reason, Mayim Bialik was there. I don't know why from um, Big Bang Theory. Uh, unfortunately, she was naked for some reason. But we were being chased in this office. And it was an office setting. Like, I like where this very, is going, guys. Keep yeah. it going. <laughs> very much like um, The Office. The Office itself, right? The TV show. Mm. So it was that kind of setting. But we were being chased around and entrapped by this tiger. It was a Bengal tiger, and I thought I was going to lose my life. Uh, I woke up sweating. Um, I woke up very confused, <laughs> and I'm not really sure why. <laughs> so I woke up so confused from this two-hour nap, and it was completely displaced. I blame a lot of it on um, on my job, which is, you know, that's mm. what we do. I got to um, ask, though. I got to ask, yeah. were you also running naked? No, I was completely clothed, but I was wet. I was like soaking wet, which I don't know why either, right? Uh, and they, I, I don't know if they're like curious. the sprinklers had gone off or something, mm. but I woke up very confused. And um, I don't know. Do you have interpretation powers? Can you uh, can you look into that for me? Because uh, I, I'm still because I remember it vividly, and I do not know why. And I'm like, why the tiger? Mm. What did I think about? What did I eat last night? Um, and I have no answers. So Were you um, scared? I was terrified. <laughs> terrified? Yeah. Terrified, dude. Well, what does what's the tiger what does the tiger represent in your life right now? Is there something you're some something or something happening that you're you're scared of? That's a good question, man. Um finances, maybe. Finances uh, are always one of those things, right? Um yeah, yeah, yeah. A lar I have a very large wedding coming up here, a wedding Ooh. in um in November. So that could be uh one mm. of those things. Um my do you, fiance do you fear loves have, sorry, do you fear having to give up naked women or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh my Bialik. or your I, fantasies I remember... about the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> no, no, see that's the thing, right? So like my fiance loves just say uh, it, Big Bang just say Theory. it, Brock. I don't think Marlise is going to listen to the episode. Just say <laughs> it. <laughs> the last thing I saw last night before I went to work was an episode of of Big Bang Theory that she was watching. 
I can't stand watching the show, to be honest with you. I, I don't like mm. it because of the laugh track. The laugh track just turns me off completely, puts a bad taste in my mouth. But I remember, uh, I remember her being very like, it was a very vivid part of it, right? Um, and she gets sick at the end and like throws up and is all sweaty. So maybe that had something to do with it. But it was last night, right? So I, I had to yeah. go to work. I come back from work and wasn't necessarily the most pleasant experience at work. But this two-hour little respite that I took, why then does she visit me in my dreams? And then why the tiger? I just, uh, I really want to know what the tiger's all about. So our yeah. listeners out there, if you could help me, uh, help me with this, that'd be, be great. That'd be yeah. fantastic. I think, I think the tiger is probably what matters the most. The fact that she was right. there naked was just like, you know, just like trash from watching. I'm just going to say right now, this, this is the worst pre banter we have ever done. Really? I think it's the best. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I'm almost ready to tell you guys to start over. <laughs> This is gold. This is better. This is not going on the gag reel. This is going live. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, it's uh, I, I it, it's trying to trying to connect things, and you know we're human too. We're we're human, yeah. and we're, we're I'm just trying to to throw out the lifeline there because um, I woke up really stressed out, and um, but uh, Ooh, here's a here's here's an analogy. Yeah. Are you in some way in your life attempting to, in the words of JFK? ride the tiger possibly yeah i didn't look at it like that but i appreciate you spinning it like that that's uh makes me feel more a lot more a lot more positive about the situation at hand so yeah that could be that could be the issue and there's a lot of issues going on in our country right now you know we, Absolutely. we don't want to we don't deafen that at all um with uh everything you know being split again and kind of regressing back to where we were um maybe that's the maybe that's the tiger i don't know mm. but um life is confusing the moral of the story is life is confusing and there are struggles and uh we all are are, are being chased by something that we have to face um that's very true but that being said uh what uh what do you know about our interview today well, we have, this is a, our third female vet, correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And she, Gloria, has been through uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's interesting because she seems like someone who has also done a lot of work on processing and recovering from her experience. Um I looked up the uh, the uh, Boulder Crest, the place where she went, and they have they have a really cool program specifically designed for veterans uh, mm -hmm. to um, to heal trauma. And so I'm really eager to actually hear about that experience. But um, yeah, yeah, she's she was... she's someone who's been in some been I guess, she's someone who has been in history uh, just yeah. from reading this um, pre-interview. Been his yeah, been in history and 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 made made some history of her own um, yes. just just getting to speak to her a little bit um it really i mean the, the entire time i wish i had a camera on or something but i i my floor my my floor my mouth was like hitting the floor because it was just so mm. uh appalling on a lot of levels but really uh kind of inspiring just kind of crazy that she was um that she made it through all of that that she made it out of of what she did. And I can't wait to 
to get into yeah. more in depth about some of the trauma and uh but some of the victories some of the um the things that she came out on top and um it's yeah it's it, aside from her being our, our third female was also an officer uh being yes. an 04 in the air force um i'm not first gonna get jag officer more, as well correct right right and that in itself if people understood that um mm -hmm. A lot of veterans don't really have a, um, a lot of familiarization with that, but they really do a lot of, I mean, the, the work they do behind the scenes is, um, it's kind of a lonely endeavor yeah. and I'm sure she'll, she'll talk to that, but it's one of those things, man, that, uh, um, she needs, she needs all the support that she can get now that she's done and separated. And, and I think part of that trauma um, that she'll speak to, uh, we'll see, um, was a direct result of, of some of the things she was asked to do and asked not to do, mm. um, as a, as a lawyer. But, um, again, just an incredibly fascinating and, um, inspiring story. And, um, uh, I can't wait to get into it, but, um, if you have anything else, well. no, let's dive we'll, in, bro. Uh, let's dive into the foxhole, shall we? Yeah. Nine doors, nine men, one mission. Hi, guys. It's Marcus, the other civilian host for the Foxhole Podcast. I want to let you know that even though I'm new to this show, I've been working with Matthew and Catherine for many years before this. We actually met at school in New York City in the age of dinosaurs before Instagram stories and OnlyFans. <clears throat> but I digress. I don't currently reside in California, but you better believe that I'll be flying out to Hollywood this October to see the Foxhole Theater Company's production of The Ninth Door. It's gonna be lit! Thrilling, visceral, funny, emotional. Trust me, I read it. I'm so excited for you guys to see it, and you really should see it. So if you don't, that's on you, bro. Follow the link in the description to buy tickets. Welcome back to the Foxhole. Uh, we're here today with Gloria Downey. Um, Gloria, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about where you grew up? My name is uh, Gloria. I grew up in Miami, lovely and beautiful, hot, big clouded city. Oh, 3,000 yeah. miles from here, as far away from my childhood as I could possibly get out here in sunny California. And what was it like? Uh, so, Gloria, explain. Um, Explain to our listeners too um, what it kind of was like growing up in um, in uh, South Florida there, and sort of the uh, and we'll get into a little bit of the childhood and stuff as well. But mm. um, you have a very rich, rich family um, mm. military history there as well. Can you uh, kind of touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. I grew up in the South when it was still still the South in Miami at that time. Uh, still incredibly racist. And my mother married a black man in 1975. And I immediately found out the difference between his skin tone and mine and grew up incredibly 
privileged and resentful of that privileged Mm. in that I was aware of my privilege and resentful in that I was aware of losing it whenever he was around, but I loved him and he was the only good thing in my life. So it drove me to seek out a course of justice actually. Hmm. And he was a green beret. He was at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama when uh, Vietnam was happening. And he felt that if he didn't do anything, he'd be enlisted and sent to Vietnam in the infantry and come home in a bag. So he decided to join as a Green Beret, and he went twice. And when I met him as a young four-year-old, he was still a hopeful person with a chance at a life. And between the abuse of his life and consequences of his PTSD and the abuse of my mother and just the pervasive racism, I've slowly seen him defeated uh, for 40 years now, 46 years. I've just watched him turn to pretty much nothing. But he was definitely the greatest inspiration in my life. And I'm really grateful that I knew that Black Lives Mattered when I was four. And I'm really proud to have learned that in, in real life. Wow. Do you want to, um, I know as well, you had many members of your family who served. You described coming from a military family. Yes, I definitely, yeah, it's funny because you know how we have the military family or the image of a veteran, right? Mm-hmm. My brain does not in any way think I come from a military family. But mm-hmm. when you yeah. ask me about my family, right? So stepfather, Vietnam, twice. My father, my birth father was Vietnam. I don't know a lot about him. His father was World War II. He was a messenger on a motorcycle. I imagine he was very cool. My great aunt on my mother's side was a nurse in World War II. And interestingly, my uncle, my mother's brother, was in Vietnam. But when when their mother committed suicide and he asked to get off on leave and come home, they wouldn't let him. And he went AWOL and that led to a terrible path of prison and drugs and ultimately death under a bridge in his 40s, I think. Mm. And I'm the last of the military service in my family line. Wow. wow. How does that how does that uh, weigh on you? I mean, I mean, it's it's really fascinating speaking to you um, before this and just getting to know you Um on a, a kind of surface level, really, we, we took a dive and that was, that was unbelievable. I, I was just uh, asking some questions and, and just finding out things. And like you said, when you're in it, right, it's almost like it, when you're in the military, you don't really realize the suck until you get out or you don't, you don't, you maybe don't realize the pride factor until you get out. And I think that takes, it's just reflection and, and time um, kind of helps you do that. But um uh, living with that perspective, you know, in the South, um, with a father like that, an example like mm-hmm. that, but in an area where uh, racism is prevalent, um, but then not only that, but, you know, generations of, of your family having served and having served pretty hard, you know, hard times where uh, in that generation, mental, mental illness and, and, um, uh, mental health was not where it is today. Right. We don't have, we didn't have the, um, maybe it wasn't outwardly as spoken about, 
as it is now. I got swept under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah of and, swept under the rug a little bit. How was that? Yeah. How was that now realizing that? Well, it's funny. I mean, it's funny, funny, bad, not funny. Ha ha. Yeah. It's the Gettles military the humor. You know, it's like, ha ha. That's right. great. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's right. ironic or it's when you look at it in a retrospective, like you always yeah. think you're different. You know, you always think your war is going to be noble. Or you always think you're not going to be the one who comes home injured or with the mental consequences. Or you, you always think the, the unjust war was fought by somebody else and it was an accident. And over time, you realize these are the norms. These are not, there's no exceptions and, and you're not going to be one. And so when I look back at my family, my great aunt who served in World War II as a nurse committed suicide. My grandfather is the only one I know of who did not have substantial issues, but I don't never knew him, you know, and considering mm -hmm. how his son turned out, he died of alcoholism in his sixties. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I don't know what, what was going on there. Like I said, my father, that would be his son. I just referred to drank his whole life. Whenever I ask anybody about my father, they say, well, he was always drunk. I mean, this is the nice thing they say about him and he liked to fish, but he was always drunk. Yeah. My uncle, like I said, got out, was drunk or in prison or on drugs or beating people up and stealing from them to get drugs my entire childhood. I would drive by the Dade County Jail and wave to my Uncle Johnny growing up as a child. Mm. And so so it's not we keep thinking like there's these all these service members who came home and did great and rah, rah. And they're proud of their service and like. All this mental yeah. illness and all this struggle is an exception, but it's not. It, it's the rule. And then having this stepfather, this amazing man who appeared in my life when I was four, he actually, I met him because my puppies were drowning under the uh, concrete porch. It was, uh, they were under in a cave and it was a Miami rain. And this black man shows up at my house to rescue my puppies. And I mean, talk about a hero instantly, right? Yeah. But I watched him just degrade, you know, between my mother's pervasive just abuse, which got worse and worse over the years because of her own issues, but him just never getting treatment. And I remember as a young kid saying to him, you know, why aren't you doing anything? Like, why don't you want anything with your life? And he'd say to me, you know, Gloria, I just don't want to be in Vietnam. If I'm not in Vietnam, I'm okay. And it's like, no, dude, you're not okay. You know, you're yeah. being abused by someone. and. As a little kid, you know, you're watching all him endure all this racism, which was pretty awful, you know, to watch. But and then you're watching him let a woman, his wife, abuse him, which totally was because of the mental illness. She totally took advantage of that. And you just slowly watch the person disintegrate. And, you know, I remember as a little kid, this man I looked up to who saved my puppies over the years wouldn't even save me. Like she'd be really abusive and I'd be calling to him for help. And he would just look at me in that PTSD panic with the eyes gone and the sweat. I remember one day she was chasing me with knives, trying to kill us both. I, a woman really was, and still is crazy. Mm -hmm. And I remember we both escaped. We got the knives away from her. We both escaped and we got outside and I turned the corner and he's standing there hunched over sweating and looking at me. And I'm telling you, I've had so many PTSD episodes since then where mm -hmm. I was that. I was yeah. that hunched over, sweaty person who wanted to help you, but couldn't, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So I grew up with all of that, like completely develop developmentally shaping me. 
and yeah. defining every aspect of who I am really. But despite that, what's so crazy is despite that you had the, <laughs> you had the fortitude and the drive to, um, to want to finish school. And I, we didn't mention this. We, we didn't the, uh, the, 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 um, the pre uh, banter there to introduce everything, but as an 04, as a JAG officer, um, it's just fascinating. Uh, if you can take us through what happened next, um, how that shaped you. I mean, what, what, how, how did that drive you to want to finish school? Because you, you dropped out of high school, right? Yes. Yes. I can definitely take you through this. The school story is fascinating. So yeah. here I am. Um, as soon as my stepfather came into the picture, he was very interested in me getting educated. And we lived in a horrible neighborhood. I grew up super poor. Uh, there were no good schools around. I remember as a little child being worried that I would get raped at the local elementary school. I mean, it was that that bad. And my stepfather was insistent that I go to a private Catholic school. And not that we were particularly religious, but it was the best school around that we could afford. And which, of course, they didn't love the interracial marriage growing up there. But but we paid the bill, so they let me go to school. Anyway, I we started in school there. I, I excelled. I loved school. I was really good at school. I experienced tons of racism and a lot of discrimination. I was definitely an outcast. They, they saw me as a tomboy. They saw me as something being wrong with me. because I mean, I was obviously gay, even though I didn't know that. I had a black stepfather and my mother was crazy. So I had all of these things that otherized me, but I was exceptional academically. And my stepfather made sure he paid that bill every month. So kick some butt, won every award I could, got out of there at eighth grade. And then my mother decides she wants to move. So I'm on track to go to a really good high school after this. But my mother randomly decides she wants to move. We moved to the middle of nowhere. They put me in some awful school, which I'm way ahead of. And I, I just have no, I just completely can't do this. I just have no concept of how to relate to this environment. And I just stopped going. <clears throat> this is in ninth grade. And my, I'm 15, and my mother says, you know, you don't really need to go if you don't want to go. And you're 15, you know? And so I just didn't go. And I laid around the house and did chores and did what she does, which is lay in the bed and do nothing for like a year. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. You know, I want it out of there. Mm -hmm. Well, about two years before that, in 1981, maybe about three or four years before that, 1981, my neighbor, Arthur McDuffie, Arthur McDuffie was beaten to death by the police. A, it was one of the first ones I saw as a child of the first cops killing a black guy case. But he was my neighbor. I knew him. I played with his kids. And we all freaked out and everybody wanted to go burn the city down. And I remember very vividly this idea of, well, let's just wait for the trial. And so we all waited for the trial. And then we were all out at a friend's house and we heard that they acquitted the cops. And these cops stood in a circle with flashlights and took turns beating him to death. There's a very old video about it. And I'd actually like to do a film about it someday. And yeah. my mother said to me, we better go home because they're going to burn the city down. So I go home and they start burning the city down. I mean, around us. And we're enough in the inner city that like gas stations are blowing up around us. And now people are coming to pull the white people white people out of their houses. This is how I'm proceeding. And I'm like 10 years old. So this was my concept. Hmm. 
Well, my mother says, okay, if they're coming to get the white people, we need to go get our friend out of the projects and we need to send Charles to the door, my stepfather, because he'll protect us. So I remember going to the projects, getting my white friends out, bringing them to the house and my stepfather answering the door. But in the house, we're kind of like, yeah, burn the city down because Mm -hmm. we knew what had happened. We were aware of the injustice. We, We knew it was wrong. Well, now this went on for three days, this, this riot. And that I think, and, and that plus that experience of just when my stepfather's around, you can rent me the house. When my stepfather, excuse me, when my stepfather's around, you won't rent me the house. But when he leaves, mm-hmm. we're okay. Having that kind of stuck with me. And so here I am, I'm 15. I'm not going to school. I'm not doing crap with my life. And I'm like, no. I want to go to college. I want to get the hell out of here. And so I said, I'm going to take my GED. And they're like, you can't take it. You have to be 18. So I put in a waiver. And because my grades had been so good, uh, they gave me the waiver. I took the GED at 16. I started at the local community college. I don't, we, we threw together the money. It wasn't much, maybe even Pell Grants. Got to the local community college, graduated pretty much on the president's list. From there, got into the University of Florida as a junior. And at this point, so I'm like 18 now. Now at this point, my mother decides she's going to stop me from going to college. And she tells my stepfather she doesn't want to pay for it and all of this. And and he told her he would leave her if she didn't, if they didn't pay. So they actually got me through college. And that also was because of him. And then after college, I was kind of like, I don't, really what know what to do. I didn't know if I wanted to be a writer. I, I didn't know if I wanted to go to law school. I just really didn't, wasn't sure. And finally it just occurred to me, go to law school, you know, change the world. And I used to say, I want to liberate the oppressed. And, and it was really funny too, because when you first go to law school, you have a vision of the kind of lawyer you wanted to be. And I would always say, I don't want to prosecute anyone guilty or defend anyone innocent you know of course you wind up doing both because you realize it has nothing to do with that it has to do with the principles we're serving you know Mm, right so went to law school got out and then my first job was as a public defender which was right in the heart of everything i ever wanted to be wow yeah that wow um i know you you say here um that there's a lot of pervasive ptsd uh, yeah. in your youth. And from just listening to you, I can tell you there was probably a lot of generational trauma, uh, in there as well. And, um, I'm curious how, cause I know you, you didn't join, um, until you were 30. So right. I'm wondering, um, how did you cope with that in your twenties, either healthily or unhealthily? My biggest fight in my twenties, a couple things. First of all, I was gaining status, right? So now I've become mm-hmm. a lawyer, I'm a public defender. I'm excelling at my work. I'm gaining status. I'm away from my home life, right? Mm. So I'm becoming something in the world. I'm traveling. I'm doing things. And I think that was very fulfilling, very like automatically rewarding. And I was getting justice on a day-to-day basis. I wasn't the greatest because I was a young public defender and they don't teach anything. But I worked really, really hard. And I found myself in a relationship with a woman in, in, in this time period. And she was amazing. And we were very much equals and uh, very compatible. The best relationship of my life. But we were also in the Mm -hmm. South. So we were dealing with a lot of 
you know, homophobia and things you deal with in the South, but it was also the nineties, you know? So there was a lot of challenges with that. So I think what happened in my twenties was I was able to like, kind of just live. And if I look at my life, that was the time I was really living, carrying out things. I was pursuing justice. I loved someone. I was traveling and life was, life was going well, Mm. but you know, I still had this, this mother at home and I still had all the things inside that I hadn't fully dealt with. And I don't know if I ever would have ever had to fully deal with them had I not gone to Iraq. Mm. I don't know if I Mm. could have carried that. Maybe I could have carried that, but for whatever reason, when 9-11 happened and I signed up and went, it really just changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. On that note, how did 9-11 affect you? So, you know, it's funny. I always wanted, I always felt like I should join the military. You know, people Mm -hmm. would say to me, why did someone like you join the military? Which I realized later was code for why is a lesbian joining under Don't Ask, Don't Tell? <laughs> yeah. But in, in, my, yeah. in my brain, I never heard it that way at the time. But now I know this. But sure. I would have yeah. three answers. And the three answers were, one, to see the world. Two, uniforms are sexy. And three, <laughs> right? three, three was, I never want to live in the world where we can't stop Nazis. You know, yeah. I feel like we should be able awesome. to stop Nazis, like as a minimum, like, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. As a bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good standard. Yeah. <laughs> right. And in my experience up till that point, there were no Nazis to stop. I mean, the Nazis to stop were the ones I was fighting in the courtroom. Right. The Nazis to mm-hmm. stop were the ones who were the racists and were the homophobes. And the yeah. there weren't any grand parties of Nazis running around and roaming the streets. So because it was the 80s and the 90s, which was relatively peaceful, we didn't have that grand call to arms. And in my mind, you know, growing up with a Vietnam veteran who really certainly was not happy about the war he served in, I knew there were, quote, good and bad wars, right? So I was going to wait for that good war to come. Well, when 9-11 happens, there's your call to the good war, the good war. And yeah, so this is an amazing part of my story, I think, because now I've been a public defender for a few years. I've been in the South. I've been with this woman for a few years. We've got a really good relationship. And we decide we want to blow off real life and go be ski instructors. And we do. Like, so I walk into my courtroom one day in Miami, you know, and the hookers are here and the pimps are here and people are beating each other up over here and they're passing yeah. the urine specimens across the judge and you know the insanity of being a public defender. And I walk in and I say, Your Honor, I just want to let you know I'm leaving to go be a ski instructor in Colorado. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. And I That's swear to you, everybody in that room was cheering for me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> So we did. We went to Breckenridge and, you know, oh my I had God. Only, yeah, I had only skied like in North Carolina on ice. So I get there and yeah. I'm in the terribly tacky costume and I have no idea really how to ski. But we, we show up and start teaching little kids and eventually we get into the culture. We do our first year there and then we live on the road during the summer and then we're getting ready to go back for our I'm also doing drag performances with my partner at this time. Uh, around the south nice yeah it was really fun (laughs) 
And we are coming back now for our second year. We're on the road. We're in the van. And we're in Oklahoma City, ironically, because Oklahoma City realized was the last big thing before 9-11. So that was like a tender point in our country of terrorism, yeah. you know. Mm. We're coming up on Oklahoma City and we go and we sleep in the van. And the next morning, my partner gets up, goes to the bathroom and comes back and says really sleepily, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. I'm like, what? Wait, you know, yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah. And I'm like, all right. So I go walking in and I see that a second plane has flown into the World Trade Center. And I'm like, this seems bad. And we get back to the van and it occurs to us we're under a terrorist, some sort of a terrorist attack. And we're coming up on a city that's going to freak out. So literally, yeah. we're driving past Oklahoma City, and we can see people freaking out, going to the gas lines and whatever. And we're listening to the broadcast on the radio. I remember listening to Peter Jennings talk about the tower falling. I, I remember listening to his narration of it and on the radio. And finally, I call. I'm like, I should call my mother. So I went to like a pay phone. I'm like, Hey mom, I'm fine. I just got through Oklahoma City. She's like, do you see we're under attack? And I'm like, yes. Well, it was in that ride between Oklahoma City and back to Breckenridge that I, okay, I'm like, I guess I got my war, right? So I went back and I said, I'm going to apply to be a JAG. And I started that horribly difficult process to become a JAG yeah. right when I got back. That is such, I mean, that's, that's a crazy I, I just, it's yeah. unbelievable, but I can't believe we didn't tap into this earlier. I grew up in Colorado <laughs> and I grew up learning how I, I learned how to ski in Breckenridge, like Breckenridge. I lived in Frisco. And so right I can't on. believe we didn't tap into this. Yeah, this is crazy. So, um, yeah. And, and Colorado was, uh, you know, it's a different pace. Um, obviously when you ski and, and experience the mountains there, it's a whole new, it's a whole new ball game, but that's quite a change from, you know, the South Beach of Miami to uh, the mountains of Colorado. But um, side tangent, no no big deal. But, you know, it's a very small world and you just made it even smaller. So right. it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, so the JAG officer process, um, this is really, really interesting. And I, I, I want our listeners, even our, even our military, um, our veteran listeners, um, it's something that, when you hear JAG, you think of maybe you think of like the TV show or you think of, um, you know, you think of a few good men, even though that's not the JAG core. But you you think of um, of it's it's sort of seen with a negative light, a negative connotation. Um, I know when I was in the Navy uh, on the Kitty Hawk, we had JAG officers that were undercover, um, undercover in the supply division trying to root out a it was a robbery scheme. It was like a whole, um, a, a ring on board the, on board the ship that, uh, went all the way up to the highest enlisted ranks and come to find out there were JAG officers infiltrated, you know, undercover within those, within those ranks. And, um, it was just, it was really fascinating, but you, you always had people kind of looking over their shoulders, like, you know, you just never know. You never know if the new sailor that's coming in there is going to, you know, put the handcuffs on you or try you at some point. So right. there's a, there's a negative connotation within the military, because if you're faced with a JAG officer, 
um, or the Jag court, you're not, uh, it's probably not the best thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so explain that situation and the, the application process and how rigorous it was. It's bad to have a Jag around. Like you don't want a Jag. <laughs> like, well, I would, I had a, I don't want to see a Jag. I mean, yeah. if I'm seeing a Jag, I'm being prosecuted or I've been uh, victimized or I have to do my will cause I'm deploying or I've been deployed and I've come home and my husband spent all my money or my wife while I was gone. Like, these are the right. reasons you're seeing a jag. There's nothing pleasant yeah. about a jag. Mm. Or you're being P-tested, right? So there's no mm. really good <laughs> connotation for being a jag. But I was really good as a lawyer. And I knew that. And I loved it. And I knew by this point that I was exceptional and that it was my calling and I knew by this point that if I went in as an officer, having my whole family only ever been, in, I mean, I guess my great aunt was a nurse, so I'll give her that. And I actually do believe she made it all the way up to probably a commander. She was in the Navy. So absolutely mad props for that. But everyone else, they were grunts with, you know, yeah. rifles in the jungle, right? There was no, there was nothing sexy about any of their careers in terms of being an officer or being a JAG or anything mm -hmm. like that. So. I recognize that, okay, I can now take another step that separates me from my childhood, that takes, takes me to another level. It was a challenge and I didn't want to go back. So I said to myself, if I'm going to do it, I kind of like my stuff on it. If I'm going, I'm going as a Green Beret. No, no. If I'm going, yeah. I'm going as a Jag, right? So that's sort of what I did. I started the com competition in competing in like October of of 2001 as soon as i got to breckenridge and it was a bitch man because at that time they were only accepting 10 percent of the applicants oh, wow. and, yeah and even though they said it was this whole person consideration that was bullshit clearly they were focused on grades and i found this out because i i competed for the army i couldn't even get the navy to like return phone calls they were ridiculous but I finally competed for the Army. They rejected me. And then I went and I competed for the Air Force, uh, went through the whole process one time, didn't get in. And then the second time I went and I said, you know what, I'm sitting here and I'm reading your application and it says you look at the whole person. Well, you, if you're looking at my grades, yeah. I see you're not going to take me. But if you're looking at these letters from judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and my clients and my peers talking about how badass I am, then you would take me. And they yeah. took me after I, I made that argument. And that whole process took took a year. But what's really funny is when I went to go do the interview, I did it over in Colorado, one of the bases in Colorado Springs. And I remember like leaving my like deutery snowboarding gear in the locker room, you know, because I'm teaching at Rex. So my only <laughs> word I use for anything is dude. And like, I'm not at all on top of anything that's going on in the world. But then I go on and put on my little lawyer outfit and I go over to the base and, and I do my interview and he loves me and and they put me in and I don't, that entire process takes a year. So I actually, what's actually even funnier about this. And I was thinking about it the other day is we finished the entire ski season, right? So nine 11 happens in September. Then we're there for that whole season. Then like in May, I get a call as like, we're packing up the house and putting it in storage for the next season. I'm like unplugging the phone and it rings. And it's this like Colonel from the Air Force base. He's like, Gloria. You're going to be a Jag. 
Like, okay, I guess I'm not putting this shit in storage. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, all right. And I just went and they told me I was overweight, which I found fascinating because I'd been skiing 100 days on the mountain, but whatever. And (laughs) it took me a month to go through that processing. And then I was in in October of 2002. So what was interesting is I went in exactly in between 9-11 and exactly in between when we decided we were going to go attack Iraq for it. Yeah. Right. So I did not go in. I was part of that group of many of us who did not go in to go attack Iraq. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. How did uh, I I'm I'm curious, how did your um, how did your partner, how did your relationship um oh god react or how did that how did that happen how did she take the news when obviously she saw you through the application process and saw you through the whole thing um how how did that conversation go when you're like i i I gotta do this this is a great question oh my god i can't wait to give you this answer (laughs) (laughs) so when we're this before we decide to go teach skiing we're in gainesville where she's still in school, or I'm a public defender. We're in bed one morning, and the phone rings. <laughs> Which is how every great moment in your life happens, by the way. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And it's the head of her church. And oh they're she was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, wow. And they call her, we're naked, we're in bed. They call her, and they're like, you know, they ask, you know, hey, you know, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. We heard this story that you're a lesbian and living with a woman and whatever. And, you know, a little hard to deny in the moment, but (laughs) yeah, true. And they're like, well, we're going to excommunicate you. Oh, yeah. So while we're in bed together, she got excommunicated by the church, which (laughs) doesn't happen to everybody every day, I got to say, but it's quite a moment. And this was really significant because her parents were really, really big into into being Jehovah's Witnesses. And mm-hmm. so because she became excommunicated, they needed they were supposed to not speak to her anymore. And they started to cut her off. Well, she's handling it. And flash forward in time, I don't realize she's not really handling it as much as she initially had been handling it. She had maintained a relationship with her brother who swore to her he would never cut her off. And I think that was what was keeping her going. But now 9-11 happens and she'd much rather be a ski bum and travel the world and pretend those things don't happen. And here I am falling back on my, I got to go serve. And it was don't ask, don't tell. And so my decision to go in, I didn't realize was also really pretty fatal for that relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, it really was because she was very anti-war, very anti-military. I mean, patently so mm-hmm. much so that the Air Force takes us. They move us to California, which sort of satisfied her because she, she we did love the Bay Area. You know, we're all about the counterculture. And I was still very actively involved in the counterculture, even though I'm signing up to be in the Air Force. I still am who I am. So I'm now in two worlds. She's still trying to stay in that world. I'm swearing under don't ask, don't tell that I'm going to go in. And what I don't know is that her brother has cut her off. Uh, She doesn't tell me this. 
So now all of these forces are kind of combining. I apologize. FedEx is here. No, it's fine. It's all right. Good. So if you're hearing the rev rev of FedEx, that is what's happening. It's real life, baby. That's all. It's all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I, all of these forces now start combining and they send me to go to JAG school in Montgomery. So I've gone in the Air Force. We've moved to California. I'm at my base for a few months. This is the end of 02, the beginning of 03. And they send me back to JAG school in Alabama. While I'm at JAG school, I'm in the back of a car. We're coming back from a restaurant. It's a bunch of other JAGs. And she calls me and she's like, I'm being arrested. And I'm like, okay. And she's telling me I'm at this protest. And the cops have us surrounded because now it's the world's largest protest against the Iraq war, right? Mm -hmm. And here I am in Alabama going to JAG school, getting trained up to go be, probably be in this war. And here yeah. she is in San Francisco getting arrested, you know, for protesting wow. the war. And I just remember sitting in the car and just saying to her, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of you. You should stand up for what you believe in and you should protest the war and, and all of these things and just really being in this conflicted space. Mm. And and I came back and she was really different. Things were really different when I came back. And what I didn't realize was that she was losing it. She was descending into drugs and alcohol and and severe mental illness. And mm. here I am now. I'm at Travis Air Force Base. I'm the head of the chief of military justice. And I've got this partner at home who's losing her mind. And I'm running a legal office under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I'm prosecuting under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I've got a partner who I can't even take care of. And, you know, that was really part of the bitch of that was, you know, my paralegal could come in and say, my kid's sick, I need to go home. But I couldn't come in and say, my partner is probably going to kill herself today. I need to go home. Mm -hmm. And that sucked, right? Well, that's ultimately in a very short period of time, turns out where she has to be involuntarily civilly committed for suicide mm -hmm. attempts. And she just disappears on me. And I mm -hmm. think what happened too is in, in all honesty, I think I disappeared too. I wasn't mm -hmm. the pot smoking, snowboarding, fuck the world person I was because I joined the Air Force and I'm a JAG and I'm going to go to war and I have to have integrity. Yeah. And I think, I think in many ways, I guess I left her when I did that, but it wasn't my intention, you know? And so we just, man, we just freaking fell the fuck apart. That was really awful. I remember when all of that was going on, I wound up in my commander's office and it was my staff judge advocate and my deputy staff judge advocate. And they both had a conversation with me about how if a person in their office is a lesbian, they, they're going to be okay with that. And <laughs> they don't expect the person to say anything or not, but, but they would be okay with it. How do you respond to that? I still don't know what you're supposed to say in that situation. <laughs> right. So I just like sat there and nodded, you know, like, Wow. What do, do? <laughs> you know, what do I do with this? Talk about a rock in a hard place. Right? <laughs> Seriously. And, and the crazy thing about it was it was don't ask, don't tell. So you're stuck between this, like, I look like I do. Everybody knows I'm gay, but I'm not going to say anything. So 
you're the officer, you're the JAG that you go to lunch and you come back and there's a first sergeant sitting in your office. And you know what this means is some gay person wants to get out under don't ask, don't tell. And they want to keep the gay person in. And they want Captain Downey to bend the rules. You know, like mm. this happened to me once a month. Like, oh God, there's another one. And they're yeah. in my office. You know, and of course. And I just remember saying, you know, dude, I can't have you read the law? It's a shall. There's not some option here. It's <laughs> shall. And if you don't like it, because they're your best troops, you should be telling your congressperson, not me. Yeah. And this was like a daily conversation I had it. That's uh I was gonna I was gonna say Mark, I know Marcus has a question for you too, but um, you know, uh based on what we know now about you uh you should really uh think about maybe getting into writing or directing and and maybe write a movie about <laughs> write a screenplay about your life that would be a good idea because this is uh i mean the more we get into it it's just uh unwrapping all these things and and uh, if only it would fit in one movie my life would be so yeah. much cooler <laughs> yeah right yeah, you sorry, could do one of those like like those three-parters on hbo or something um, I yeah yeah <laughs> um it's well it really sounds like you've done a lot of work on unpacking all of all of that from um from that relationship but do you want to take us a little bit deeper into um the process of uh of becoming a jag and what what boot camp was like uh for you sure yeah so it was yeah, it was a paper process initially. It was a lot mm-hmm. of I had to go meet somebody and I had to compete and I had to convince them they wanted me. And then it becomes this weird thing. So I'm a public defender. Now I'm back in Ocala, Florida, the South, mm-hmm. temporarily working as a public defender while I lose these like five pounds that have, su- you know, I'm so fat, right? I've got to lose <laughs> these five pounds before they'll right. pay. I've been skiing every freaking day, but I got to lose Water these weight. five pounds, yeah. right? Yeah. Whatever. So I bring my happy butt back to the South, kind of to put away my life because, you know, put things sort of in order because I had left to be a ski instructor. So I go back to the South. I'm working as a public defender. They're sending me all these documents like by email. You know, it's like the oath. You're signing your oath. You're getting commissioned. They commission you as a first lieutenant right off the bat. You're filling out your don't ask, don't tell paperwork. And, you know, I just remember my secretary notarizing anything, everything like in between court. And... Suddenly they tell you, here's your plane ticket, show up at Montgomery, Alabama, which, you know, in itself is a little bit of a culture shock from a college town, but whatever. So I remember very vividly that night in Maxwell Air Force Base crying. I remember being on the phone crying and calling my partner and being like, what have I done to myself? Because I was just like, this is so, I don't know what I was thinking. I shouldn't be here. I'm sure a lot of people do this, but I just remember this like, and she's kind of like, you did it. You know, I told you it was going to be whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, but you get there, you have no idea what any of it is. You have no idea how to salute. You have no idea how to put on your your uniform, your costume, I would call it. Okay. Mm -hmm. This tells you how out of connected I was. And you would just like show up and they throw all your clothes in a bag and you're just like trying to get the prior enlisted to teach you how do I put this on my uniform? How do I salute? How do I march? How do I, what? And they're teaching you how to lead each other in marching and you don't even know how to march. They, they, you're there with what's really trippy and that people don't know is that they send you to this thing called 
commissioned officer training. So you show up as a first lieutenant or whatever rank you've been assigned. And from there, they teach you what that means. So I went with JAGs, doctors, and chaplains. And it was just as weird for them in that, like, the commander of our our student wing was a colonel, and she had had colonel pinned on her because she'd been a doctor for a million years. But she didn't know any more about the Air Force than I did. So it was the blind leading the blind. But it was also this very bizarre disconnect in that JAGs are line officers and can command command. And medical people and chaplains have these really limited rules and different rules of engagement and different rules about what they can and cannot command. And so we're really, really different people. And the doctors were the bottom percent of the recruitment. So you have these jags that are the cream of the crop. And you have these doctors that are like drunk, in, in training. I mean, we had one that they washed out because she wouldn't stop drinking, but you don't think they got rid of her. No, they just made her go through again. Right. Yeah. So it was this really bizarre world where we really were oddly paired, but because we were sort of the odd ones, they stuck us all together. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And they were kind of desperate for, like you said, they were desperate for doctors and, and, um, yeah. and chaplains at that time, I'm sure that they just, um, they had to push them through. It's almost like when I went through, um, Pensacola, you know, they were so desperate for Marines and Marine air crew specifically that they, even if they failed their tests, they, the Navy instructors would kind of look the other way a little bit and be like, right. uh, he didn't touch the bottom of the pool. You have to do like a two mile swim in the, in the pool. Right. And uh, it was like, oh, like, he didn't touch the bottom pool. He's fine. Let's let's fucking send him on. We're good to go. And exactly. I was just like, oh my god, what the hell? But it's because the yeah. standard was they needed they needed bodies, and uh, that's right. no different in the officer corps. And that's uh, it's just it's it's fascinating to hear that because we don't get the we don't get a lot of exposure to that um, very often. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, especially on the podcast. That perspective is um, is really unique, and there is that divide between enlisted and officer. Um, but you, but describing it, how, how, how you are is, is really eye opening, you know, and, and it sheds a lot of light on that. But, um, uh, yeah. So you said it was a four week, sort of a four week sort of rushed, uh, boot camp. Completely rushed Yeah, that we had a drill instructor one day and he came over and taught us about our uniforms and he called our accessories accoutrements. He was from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so they were not accoutrement. They were accoutrements. <laughs> and he taught us how to salute and that was the most formal of the training Mm -hmm. the rest of the four weeks i'm not even entirely sure what we did we played war a couple times in very limited ways you know Mm -hmm. just a lot of processing um you know the most minimal of stuff Mm -hmm. it it was surreal And then after that, you you basically get assigned, right? Do you get to do you have any choice in the matter, or do they just uh, look at your your resume, so to speak, and say, "Hey, we need you here. This is the spot we what, need you to what, fill." Very, very. What's very, very cool is that when you first go in and you're selected as a JAG, you get your choice, and you get to tell them what places you want to go. And so when they called and offered me Travis, which was next to San Francisco, my partner was a little more willing to cooperate. Because that was the base we wanted. Mm. So we had already, so they sent us to COT. 
And that was the first thing they did. We sent us a cot and then they sent us to Travis. So we had already moved. We've been at Travis a few months, I guess. And then they send you back to Montgomery to go to JAG school. And JAG school is this nine week thing where you learn how to do court martials and about all the other laws. And it's at JAG school that my partner gets arrested for protesting the war. It's at JAG school that up on the big screen, we're watching the Saddam Hussein statues fall. Mm-hmm. So it's at JAG school that it becomes very clear that we're going to war in this country who's done nothing to us, right? Mm-hmm. And But I'm on the trajectory. I've just signed up, right? So you you have to prepare for it because you're going to yeah. go. So, and that was when that relationship really started to struggle. So that was when I came home and she was really, really starting to get more and more detached. But I did my nine weeks and then they brought me back to the base. And then at the base... You know, my whole Air Force career was Captain Downey. We know you're really good at military justice because you were a public defender, but we want you to get a more rounded education. I never got a more rounded education. (laughs) I was always the one that they called in when there was some fire to clean up some mess in the military justice section. And that was what I always did. So when I got back, I started on that path. You know, I was the chief of like adverse actions. So like Article 15s. And then eventually I'm the chief of military justice. And now I'm basically waiting to get deployed, but I'm running that legal office, that section of the legal office, and I'm working to deal with a new issue that's really coming to the forefront, which is sexual assault. And I invented this program. I invented, I don't know if I invented it. We came up with something called dorm women awareness. And we would start these briefings where we'd bring all the enlisted women over from the dorms and just let them talk about, you know, what to do to be safer and how to help each other. And really just for the first time having dialogues about the pervasive sexual assault that now is being revealed. That actually became a DOD benchmark. And they started using that program around a lot of the a lot of the services. I also started doing a lot of great prosecutions while there. And you never get convictions. I mean, it wasn't that we weren't bringing the cases. It was that the juries were not convicting people. They, they just wouldn't, no matter what. <laughs> it was very discouraging. Mm. So I did that for a few years. And while I was doing that was when my partner had the complete and total breakdown. And I had to get through that. And I just remember when she was finally hospitalized, being so grateful that I wasn't going to come home to a body. You know, that was my big fear that I was going to come home and she was going to be dead. And, and I couldn't tell anybody or get any support. And Mm. that was very, very hard. Mm. And at that point, she revealed that she was having an affair with a, a guy, a gay guy. And it seemed to me like, there was a lot of craziness going on there and she was really disappearing. And I knew I'm in the air force and I'm going to war and this person is falling apart. So I tried to be as supportive as I could. And finally I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I called headquarters and I said, I went out of here. I'll go to Korea. And the key to Korea in the JAG Corps is if you go to Korea for a year, then you get any job you want after that. Mm. right and i wanted to go to europe i wanted to see the world so 
I called and I'm like, I want to go to Korea. I want to go to Korea. And they're like, okay, we'll get you to Korea. Well, they did this thing that they actually, I was the last person they did it with because it never worked, but it worked with me. Usually when they take a JAG and make them a defense lawyer, it's at the same office or the same base where they've been a JAG. This way they know the system. They know people. They're established. They have roots. But there's this weird thing they used to do back in the day called a direct fill, which was I'm going to take you from Travis as a prosecutor, move you to Korea and make you the area defense counsel. Well, they did that with me. They said, your record is such that you need to do this. You're totally capable of doing it. So I took my butt to Korea and I was the area defense counsel and I was there for a year and it was awesome. And I was the defense lawyer for not only Osan Air Base, but for 23 geographically separated units. And my face was in every dorm hallway, everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't go out on the street because everybody freaking knew me. Mm -hmm. And the relationship with my partner, we were still kind of fighting, still kind of struggling, still trying to keep it together, still supporting each other. It was really complicated. And she wound up moving to Seoul and she was teaching up there. She was teaching English. So I was living on the base, but on the weekends I was going up and spending time with her in Seoul. Mm -hmm. So it was a really crazy, bizarre time. But what I did there mostly was defend rape cases. Mm. Yeah, a lot of them. When on Travis, what a trip too, because on Travis you're prosecuting most and it's just now you're taking the other side basically. And it's Mm. uh I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, you did your did your duty as as a lawyer as a sworn um, you know officer in the in the military, but having to take on those dual sides. I mean, mm. how complex that must have been. Uh, for it was to deal with. And you know what was trippy about it was if you have the allegiance to an ideal, right? It's a lot easier. So the ideal is you know you got the right to this and I'm going to give you the best defense possible and whatever. But my ideals are also like, I'm going to be kind to victims. You know, you don't have to destroy a person if you're defending someone. So if I had a case where it was really obvious, my guy did it. I mean, really, and he's like admitting, okay, let's plea. I'm not in there trying to destroy the victim's life. You know I mean? They're trying to get through the damn thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and that was most of them. But I did have a case, and my partner called the victim in this case Sergeant Snatch. That was not her name. (laughs) That's what she called her. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a fantastic story. I'm down at Kunsan Air Base defending another case, and my paralegal calls me and says, this guy just came in, and he's covered in hickeys. And, And the woman who gave him the hickey says that he raped her. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. So we start documenting these hickeys and and whatever. And when I get back, I call them in and the hickeys are still on there. I mean, the, the, the girl went to town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm hearing the story from this guy. And it's very, very clear that Sergeant Snatch has got some other motivation. Well, as I'm investigating now, I did the thing that I later became famous for, which is when you think you have a liar. You basically investigate in circles around them. So her closest friends, everybody she lives with, everybody they Mm -hmm. mention, everybody they mention. And you get to this point where you've got like 100 people you've talked to and then you've run out of new names. Right. So I learned and I invented this way that you could get around the rape shield 
<clears throat> by figuring out all of these lies these people are telling or all these other behaviors that aren't consistent with how the government's trying to present a victim. Mm -hmm. And I developed this tactic and I actually taught and trained on it. Now, do I love that that was used probably against victims who probably really were victims? No, of course not. Do I love that it was used when people were lying? Hell yeah. Because I yeah. think lying about rape allegations is part of what makes it so freaking hard to prosecute the damn things. Yeah. So in this yeah. particular case with Sergeant Snatch, it turns out my client says to me one day, hey, I've got this friend and he says, you know him. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what the hell does that mean? And I did know him. I knew him from Travis. And at Travis, he'd been helping me on a drug case. And he came into me one day and he said, Captain Downey, for the love of God, please let me leave this base. You've had me on admin hold forever. I swear to you, I don't know anything. I'm just a drunk. Let me go to Osan. <laughs> and I'm like, fine. So I let this poor kid go on with his life. Lo and behold, he comes into my office. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's you. And he says, yeah, she loves putting hickeys on her boyfriend's. She and he describes to me all the areas where he where she put him on on him. And I'm thinking, I can't even believe this is really happening to me. <laughs> but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, through these hickeys, I got her on the stand and I used that concentric circle approach. And I just impeached her and impeached her and impeached her. And we eventually got her Article 15 and discharged for lying. And my guy got let go. Wow. 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 That's and he incredible. Said to me, he said, here's a great quote. He, he says to me, I, I remember when we did the hearing, when it was obvious she was in big, hairy trouble, when I totally sank her battleship. And he comes back to my office and he says, I feel great. I think we're going to win. I said, shut up. It's not over till it's over. <laughs> in this system. I want you to stay home and behave and, you know, stay out of trouble. And he yeah. says, fine. So when we got the charge dropped and I called him to my office and he, he comes in and he says, I didn't win because there's justice. He says, I won because my lawyer is good at destroying other women's lives. Oh, <laughs> oh God. God. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. And then you got to take that home with you and <laughs> oh, <laughs> sit on that. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, Holy shit. I see in, I see in here as well. Um, it says you, you prosecuted a case of treason? Indeed. And I love that you're asking this because you mentioned a few good men. Not yeah. only did we, <laughs> did we, when we did our formal dinner our, uh, at, at Maxwell, when we were getting out of JAG school, we did a formal dinner where we acted out a scene from a few good men, which I imagine everybody probably does. But when I was at Travis, it was when it was right when we took all those people from Iraq and brought them to Gitmo. And they were all in those prison down there. It was the initial wave of terrorist leaders that we kept down at Gitmo. And one of our airmen was down there as a translator and he was being investigated for treason. And because I was the kick-ass lawyer that I was, I was on the team that was selected to go down. And it was really funny because to this day, whenever I talk about it, people ask about whether I wore my faggoty white uniform from the movie, right? Of course, we don't have faggoty white uniforms in the Air Force, mm. but that was the joke associated with Gitmo. 
So we get down there and it's a trip. Gitmo is freaky, man. Mm-hmm. Gitmo is this series of like chained in areas on the waterfront with levels of internal security. Nobody has name tags on. And it's all this psyop shit. It's like your wife wants you to confess. Your children want you to confess. If you, everything is better when you confess. Cooperation is the way. I mean, all of this really intense. And then they have levels of misery. So some of the camps, like you have no privileges at all. But if you cooperate, you can play soccer. Like these are all the different signs you see. And they have these interrogation rooms where there's these floor hooks where the prisoners are chained to the floor. And this is totally bizarre. And then while I'm down there, because I'm trying to talk to witnesses about whether or not this airman did anything wrong, mm. they're like, you want to go to maximum security? So like the however many that are still there, this is them that are still there. And it's a trailer and it's a prison trailer. And so you walk through the inside of this prison trailer and there's all the little window holes and you smell them. Like that biggest thing is that you smell them and they're all in these little slots and they're still there. They've been there 20 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. I'll never really forget that. And the kid, it turned out, was just nice. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) he, he just wanted to treat them like human beings. Mm. And the people in charge decided that because he was a Muslim that wanted to treat the people there like human beings, that he was a traitor. And they harassed and harangued him for about a year and a half. They brought him back to Travis. They kept him in pretrial confinement. And ultimately, he pled out to credit time served. None of the treason charges. Mm. Early on in the case, I went to my boss and I said, when I got back from Gitmo, I went to my boss and I said, this kid didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I mean, maybe if he, he broke some regs, but he's not a traitor. The lawyers on this case are insane. They're mm-hmm. making things up and I don't want to be a part of it. And she, you know, blew me off a few times. And finally I came into her and I said, I'm not going to be part of this anymore. And finally I was let off of the case. And ultimately the poor kid pled and his life was probably, I imagine was ruined on paper. I can only imagine what happened to him. <clears throat> but it was totally that it was totally him being decent and being a Muslim. I saw it with my own, with my own eyes. And frankly, even in that room where, you know, the worst of the worst terrorist leaders were, you even had empathy in that because this was not a good situation that these people are in. Definitely not. Definitely not. I had a, uh, I had a really good friend of mine who was an M, uh, MA master at arms in the Navy. And, uh, one of his first duty stations was Gitmo. <clears throat> And, um, I mean, it definitely, the, the conditions, the conditions go both ways, you know, and that, that was, he, he was ordered to do things that are just atrocious, you know, and in the meantime, he's doing a regular patrol and would get, you know, feces thrown at him and stuff. And, but, but the conditions that, that they were kept in were just, uh, yeah, they were, and, and this is obviously, this is during the situation, during the, 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 a part of our, our history in the military where it's kind of a black stain. It's kind of a black guy because mm-hmm. you get uh, interrogation styles that come to mind, like waterboarding and um, things that like we wouldn't, you know, things that we would associate maybe with like 
an axis of evil type country, right? Um, and it's things it's that are something that are proven to like produce uh, false absolutely. information as well. That are, right. that are exactly they're they're designed to produce results, and a lot of times they do. But um, there's a lot of innocent um, bystanders, a lot of innocence that goes unchecked and and kind of gets washed over. And it sounds like this this young airman was uh, was no exception. Um, and it sucks. It sucks to, to, to hear that. But we also know we're also very familiar with the fact that like, this is a this is a large machine. And if you don't, um, and having a perspective like yours really sheds light on that, you know, <clears throat> so two thoughts come to mind. One, when I was at Gitmo seeing firsthand what we were actively doing, we were probably actively doing that at Abu Ghraib at the same time. Like that's mm. the timeline of when this was unfolding. Of course, we didn't know that at the time, right? But it was really interesting because when I see pictures of like bloody spots at Abu Ghraib from the torture rooms, it's those exact hooks on the floor that I'm telling you I saw, you know, at Gitmo. And the other thing that's really interesting is, and I don't like anything about what I'm about to state morally. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, and I remembered very clearly thinking this when I was there, you can never let these people out. Yeah. Because of what you've done to them. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> I remember, like, if you did this to me, I'd come cut all your heads off. You mm -hmm. know, like, I remember thinking that when I was down there. Because... Just like what ultimately transpired in that horrible court system I was in in Iraq, there was no system to determine who did anything right or wrong. There was no system to separate innocent from not innocent. And yeah. so just the very pollution of them by putting them with the guilty made yeah. them right. So yeah. interestingly... And when we talk about Iraq, I know we'll talk about this more. Interestingly, Gitmo was where we started breeding terrorists. That's the yeah. active birthplace of the American breeding of the terrorism that came from our response to 9-11. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's funny. Well, it's not funny, but but you see you see how um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not uh, not a bystander, but uh, um collateral damage you see the collateral and that doesn't that doesn't encompass it yeah. at all but how collateral damage really does take effect like that there's no perfect way to do it we were in desperate times um which caused for desperate measures no doubt about that right. but the way you're right though the way we went about it you know no <clears throat> to that point we had never been attacked like that with that much loss of life on a civilian scale right pearl harbor was was defining and put us into the the largest war you know the world war um in our country's history in the world's history and so well maybe not the world's history but but our country's history but um the the large loss of civilian life there really took effect to this generational war that we've been involved in for 20 years now and right. um that response there um, imperfect as it, I mean, far from perfect as it was, it's like how looking back on it, 
these tactics and it's it's one of those things that that raises questions for me like i would love to just sit in a room with these decision makers at that time and say like what what was what was the protocol here like what were what were we thinking as far as like how do we get information from these people who might be innocent you know and and then how do you go to these extreme these extreme measures and kind of blanket um punish everybody for the same for the same thing, right? And like you said, it's a it's a training. It became a training ground for ISIS and all these different factions because and we've talked about this too with with other, um, you know, with grunts who were there and uh, with I mean, just many a lot of veterans who who saw this firsthand. You have um, that that culture and that society. Uh, it goes back generational. I mean, it's it, it's if you wronged my my brother or my father's father they're not going to forget that it goes on for generations and you do something like that. And you, like you said, it's, it's sort of a breeding ground for, um, for vengeance. And um, it's, it's, it's crazy that you say you can't l- let them out, but, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Cause yeah. if you do that, once you do that, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you then not expect to have um, some sort of retaliation? I think they had to prepare for that almost, but. Yeah, you've created these. You've created these people who now have a very real reason to have a grudge against the mm-hmm. United States, right? Which is something I dealt with constantly when I was in Iraq. Was that exact feeling? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny when you're doing like a sentencing argument as a prosecutor. They keep, it's mm-hmm. very formulaic, and they tell you all the grounds and all the, the the approaches you can go to tell the judge what the sentence should be or the jury. And one of the reasons is retribution. And retribution is a primary motivating sentencing theory and you know it's there were no guys sitting around with a grand plan there were pissed off people trying to feel better by killing some other people or capturing some other people i mean on a very reactive level that's kind of how we started this mess right yeah right you know and that's not a good way to handle stuff yeah absolutely (laughs) You know, like that's that doesn't work well. No. And 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 we are in this 20 year mess because of that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just going to Iraq in itself is is a problem because yeah. these people had freaking nothing to do with 9-11. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, we were in such a bloodthirsty state. And the thing, too, that you raise about Japan is we knew it was Japan. That's right. That's the thing. You know, right. we knew it they flew their Japan. flag. We knew exactly. Yeah, exactly. We knew yeah. it was there was already a war or two war going on. Yeah. We were wanting to get in the war anyway, and it was like the universe opened up to invite us into an exact little slot. Okay, but what did the universe invite after nine eleven? A lot of upset Americans who wanted to take vengeance. And yeah. how did America react on the street by going after like Muslims? Right? Yeah. Wasn't that what yeah. we saw in New York? It was just like a blatant, like a blanket racism against Muslims. Yeah. Or like a blanket prejudice. Yeah. Pretty much. So now now I'm going to go fly off and attack Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's just Mm. fine because I'm killing the Muslims where they are. I mean, what was the shirt? I'd fly 10,000 miles to smoke a camel. Yeah. That was a popular shirt at the time. So that's really what we did was this knee jerk thing to an unknown enemy. And we Mm -hmm. just crossed it to all Muslims over there. I mean, that's yeah. how I feel we handled it. Mm-hmm. And because we were so bloodthirsty at that time, because we were so like, 
we got to get vengeance. We got to, and, and it was unanimous. It was pretty unanimous, right? The, the country on both sides was not a, a, bipartisan. There's a lot of public was, support. Yeah, yeah. It was not a partisan thing here. Like a lot of people, um, on both sides were affected deeply by it. You know, you can't, you, sure. can't, you can't take lives of our civilians and get away with it. So we're going to come after you and, you know, beware. Cause we're coming, we're coming with the, the strong arm and, you know, it's, uh, um, Looking back on it, we kind of see, you know, it, it, the the collateral damage. Obviously, twenty years later, we have a whole generation of veterans defined by these actions, defined by the actions of the Taliban, and then defined right. by by the actions of of our of our government and the U.S. military. Mm. Um, and as members, we can talk as veterans. We can talk about that, and that's the beautiful thing about. It, it's really funny. It's really funny how we how we're able to. You know, I. It's still. I I consider it still you know the greatest country because we have the the opportunities afforded to us to talk about this freely and and right. and we have to we have to as veterans check our our former employers you know and mm -hmm. and be able to talk about these things um and take uh, to to just kind of be a a a warning flag but also just to you know those people that are in those decision making roles for them if even if they hear about it by proxy or whatever they can just be aware of the effect that it has the long-term right. that it has ptsd tbi all these all these things um because we were stepping into a situation that uh we weren't 100 percent prepared for um and now we're looking at the exit situation and that's even that's a whole nother thing um but i want to i i, I want to switch gears a little bit with you gloria um Sort of a positive note. I want to. I want to ask you about um, your time traveling. So Osan, I was. I was in Japan the whole time. I was in uh, the Navy, and I traveled around obviously on uh, on the the biggest cruise liner I could possibly you know imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, got to see a lot of countries. But calling Japan my home home for four years was just a privilege, and it was an honor just to be part of that culture. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Korean culture and then just your ability and your, your desire to want to travel and see Southeast Asia and maybe some, some highlights from that? Absolutely. I freaking loved Korea. I mean, at first it was freaky because so Asia tight, yeah. is so different. I mean, yeah. Asia is so different from America or Europe. So it was really super foreign. I mean, you can't, you, you know, as well as I do, but I mean, you, you can't even read anything like, like, it's just so vastly different, but so communal. And I don't mean communal, like in communism at all. I mean, this, Korea especially is incredibly capitalistic and democratic and as vibrant and, and forward looking as we are as a country, Korea and Japan very much. Oh, so, Korea set the standard, yeah. right? They really do with like sustainable technology and and green mm -hmm. technology. It's it's fascinating. It really is. And the amount of tech, you know, Samsung and, and so much comes comes out of there. And I don't I don't think you realize it till you get there. But they a lot of things I love about them. They're very close to the earth. Their food comes like you buy each piece of food on the stand on the corner in the little town, you know, that the, the lady just went and got out of the yeah. field. And there isn't this processing and all of this shipping and all of these grand corporate food systems are very, very close to the earth. And I loved that. I loved that their work and their homes are all built around these like 
like the company will be in the middle and the town will be around it and it'll have a market and it's all very contained and and sustainable i love that they keep their cities clean and beautiful and they take care of each other and you see you do see some homelessness in the big cities but nothing nothing like i've seen in america i mean not even close yeah. there's an entire kindness an entire decency a a sense of oneness a sense of yeah. national pride that yeah. uh that was honor. really an honor and yeah. what, what was very cool when i was there was ironically I actually did get to serve in a war that I could be proud of because when they, at Christmas time, the Koreans dress up as Santa and they come and they bring service persons pieces of the wire fence from the DMZ. Mm. As a thank you wow. for, yes, for wow. holding that line for them. And I still have that and I value that very much. But there are, yeah. And when you go to Seoul, which is this massive, 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 massive city. And then you're standing there looking out at this desolate ass North Korea. You know, <laughs> there is no question as to the difference between being in one of those places and the other. And just the gratitude and the loving us being there and the respect for us and the appreciation and the, this is the only time I've served where I knew I was doing something to be really proud of because the people there really wanted me there. You know, yeah. at Travis, when you're stateside, you're sort of just like this weirdo in a uniform in the mall occasionally. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, so there's no like they're like, okay, you're a service member or whatever. You know, there, there's that. They don't really understand us or know where we come from. When you're overseas, it's really different. So I'm here in Korea and I just had such profound, just such gratitude. And I got to travel a lot from there. I did a lot of cases. I did cases in Guam. I did cases in Japan. And then I also traveled just on my own to Thailand and China. And I just really enjoyed just the sense that we're all in this together that you feel there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What was, one of, what was one of your favorite places? <clears throat> I like Japan. Tokyo Disneyland was rad. There's something about hearing <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean in Japanese that you never forget. <laughs> it's such a trip, right? When you go through it. Oh my God, it's such a trip. The skull and crossbones in Japanese is yeah. like yeah. utterly freaky. <laughs> yeah, right. So I thought that was amazing. And what I love about Korea is every little town has some point in it that has a little mountain that has at the bottom, it has stones for you that you walk on with your feet they're like reflexology stones you walk on those and then you go up these mountainsides and at the top of everyone is a temple and it smells amazing and there's amazing sounds sounds and all the as they call them ajimas little old ladies are up mm -hmm. there and there you are you're your badass air force self and you're you know sucking wind trying to get up the mountain and the little ajimas just racing past you in her heels you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's that's such a trip. It reminds well, me of when I when I was able to. I'm sorry, Marcus. I, this is my last. I just talking about Japan gets me all giddy and I freak. No, out, no, no, but, no. Take it away. Um, yeah, I just like you saying that. Really reminded me of uh, of when we hiked. Uh, we did Fuji, and it's obviously mm. you can you know when we when you hike Fuji, it's a it's a rite of passage, and 
you can only do it when the weather's perfect and there's a very small window in the summer in which to do it. Um, and I did it twice. I did it once uh, when I was in the Navy and once as a civilian. But I remember in the Navy, like you said, you know, I was like best shape of my life. Like, let's hard charge this. We're going to get up there in freaking no time flat. Um, but we got our water. We got our camelbacks on. We're like super prepared because um, we're all, you know, we're all up there together. and We're kind of motivating each other. I um, mean, you, you get up there. The goal is to get up there in about four. You want to time it for about four hours so that you can get up there for the sunrise. You know, it's it's a huge, right. it's a very symbolic sort of thing. But we're up there and we're we're getting all the, we're, we're hitting the switchbacks. We're getting to each station pretty pretty quickly. Um, but the locals there that do it all the freaking time are they don't have any water. There's no water with them. They just got their walking stick. And they freaking pass you, and it's like slow and steady wins the race, man. And we'd stop and be like, "Oh man, I'm 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 a little winded right now. I'm always take a break for a minute, get some water." Right. And these little these little Japanese dudes in their sixties probably are just fucking racing past us, you know, <laughs> like right. like just getting up there in no time flat. But it just it just garnered so much respect for them, um, and for that sort of that process and that that experience really was one of those things that. I'll never forget, you know, I, I'm actually looking at my walking stick with all the stations on it right now. And it snapped. This was the second time, but it, I, I snapped it in half because my freaking my <laughs> legs gave out. And this was uh, I was with my ex-girlfriend at the time. My legs gave out on the way back down and I was pissed off because it was cloudy. It was cloudy at the very top. So we didn't get that epic picture, you know, but on the switchbacks down, I was already pissed. I uh, dropped my water bottle, my liter bottle, and it started tumbling down the freaking volcanoes, tumbling down. And I was like, no, fuck this. I'm getting the stupid water bottle. And these Japanese, these Japanese nationals are looking at me like, what's this crazy guy Gene doing right now? This guy's out of his <laughs> right. mind. And I, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time was like, was like, Brock, can we please just get down? We're almost there. And I'm like, I'm getting my water. And I went down and I like snapped my stick. I snapped my stick in half over my knee, got, got the water. And God bless her. She ended up uh, gluing it back together. And, you know, it's just a memory of it's a memory of how how arduous that whole process is. And and it was very symbolic and uh, just a beautiful experience. But I just love you talking about that kind of stuff, because, man, when you experience a different culture, it really takes you it takes you out of yourself for a little while. And you can actually see, um, you know hundreds thousands you know thousands of years of history right in front of you and it really i don't know it inspired me so um i don't know how did how, did that did that have any sort of weight or or inspiration on you for um for things that were to come in your future especially where we're about to uh go which is uh, iraq i definitely know what you mean by the thousands of years behind it yeah. You, when you are there, know they've been doing this a really long time and that we as yeah. a nation and as a people are really children yeah. and a very adolescent. And these are, this is an older, wiser culture who understands the shortest distance between two points is getting your food out of the ground and eating it, for example. Yeah. You know, like, right. <laughs> they're very, they're very aware and it always felt like there was a healing or a way of being available there that would probably be pretty incredible if I knew how to access it or if I needed it. 
but it always felt inaccessible to me while I was there. Like I, I could go to the temple and I could have the experience, but it didn't feel like the way of my soul, like it was for them. Mm. And funny now, right, you know, now that I'm at this point in my life and I've just learned transcendental meditation, which is Indian, obviously, and not, you know, Korean, but more of that Eastern thought, mm. I, I'm becoming more where I've returned to this is a way of living. And there is a reason you do the reflexology with your, you know, at the bottom of the mountain. And there is a reason there's a temple at the top. Like it's all making much more sense to me. But at the time I was this hard charging American Air Force Jag who was about to go to war. You know, mm-hmm. and I would, I, I didn't want to stop and contemplate anything and get in my body. You know, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be ready <laughs> for what was coming. Right. So yeah. I could see it and I could appreciate it, but I was really disconnected from it. And what's interesting is you mentioning Mount Fuji. I went over to Japan for a case and they took us to on a C9, I think, little tiny bug. I mean, yeah. tiny little yeah. plane. And I mean, the plane's like shaking, going down the runway. And with the sky, it's like vibrating. And it feels like it's barely moving. Like you don't even know how yeah. it's in the sky. But when we right. flew into Tokyo, they flew us directly as close to Fuji as you could possibly get. And like tilted, tilt winged it, you know, and That's like sick. took you right. You basically scraped the damn thing coming in. I was yeah. like, all right, right. And another quick plane story in Korea, because I was in the dorms, oh, which sucked. I did not want to be in the dorms, but my my boss made me. I am as constant, the U2s and the A-10s and the fighters, I mean, constant, 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 constant. And I remember I would go after work and I would run the flight line, which to me sounds psychotic because I hate running and like the, yeah. just the thought of it now, but I would go run the flight line, which is a lot, you know? And I remember one night running around the back of it and this fighter jet's taking off and he gets to like just the end. He's just clearing the lights and I'm just coming under him and he tips his wing at me. <laughs> I was like, right on, very cool. <laughs> wow yeah hella cool yeah so i think before we get to iraq let's uh let's go to ramstein or ramstein air force base i think you had a a landmark case there i did the case came after iraq but it so i'll just set it up i went to ramstein okay so korea was a year long and Mm. one of the beauties of going to korea is you get to pick your follow-on assignment. And so now it's, we're in Iraq, okay? So now they're telling you, me, okay, we can send you to this place back in the States and you probably won't deploy, or we can send you to Ramstein and we're not gonna give you a great job because there aren't any available and you're probably gonna deploy. And I'm like, I wanna see the world. So they sent me to Ramstein. And f- screw that about not giving me a great job. Within like five minutes, I was the chief of military justice again. that's like what i did and now because i'm a defense lawyer was a defense lawyer now i'm also the test person so if they had a case they were scared to bring mainly a rape case they would make that person go see captain downing and these victims would have to get through my gauntlet of this is what a defense lawyer is going to do to you and can you survive it survive it and then i would go and brief back to command hey this is a good victim or not I know it's a terrible way to put it, but that's mm. that's how we did it. 
this is something you want someone you can get through. I don't know if this person can get through. So I was sort of like the gauntlet, you know, they'd lock them in a room with me, which is an interesting thought. But here I am at uh, Ramstein and I got there in 06 and I did the justice thing for about a year. And then one day they say to me, <clears throat> you've been selected to go to, to go to Iraq. And basically I was voluntold. It was one of those conversations that was, do you want to go, but not really, do you want to go? Yeah. And I said, okay. And what was cool was I was told, so now the Abu Ghraib scandal had come out, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we allegedly were going to Iraq now to put in rule of law and the surge was about to happen. Mm. So I was deployed as part of the surge to go to something called Task Force 134. So Task Force 134 was the system of quote unquote justice they created to process detainees so that there would have some, I don't know, some illusion of accountability. Mm. I, I'm not entirely sure what it was. Uh, it, it was the solution to Abu Ghraib, but it wasn't much of anything. It was really just putting in a process. And that's what, that was my deployment. So my, I called my mother and the partner who still now we're in the final process of ending things we tried to fix things she tried to get better it was really convoluted um but we ended while i was in iraq finally it took a couple years but i called my mother and i called her and they both said to me you need to get out you need to get out under don't ask don't tell you know you don't support that war and i'm like thinking to myself what kind of representation of my community is that i'm mm. not gonna go to war i'm gay yeah <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> i'm gay i can go to war you should go and get killed i mean how yeah. does that go right no. <laughs> so they're convinced and they're both all on me about it and i'm like mm. no i'm not gonna do that well i start preparing to go they send me to a something called advanced contingency skills training in Fort Dix, New Jersey in the winter to prepare to go to Iraq in the summer. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yay. That's awesome, smart. Right. They teach us, they let us wear our night goggles for like five minutes. Um, you know, my helmet doesn't fit. I don't know how to work them. They let us fire a bunch of weapons, but only like one time. They let us learn how to drive, which I'm grateful for because I did wind up being a driver there. Uh, but but it was stupid. I mean, it was stupid. It was checking a box of we've trained these lawyers how to go to war and mm -hmm. you have not. OK, Yeah. so they tell me you're going to Task Force 134 and it has three components. And one of them is particularly dangerous because you go to the red zone every day but you get to go to court. And I said, me, 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 I'm doing that one. And as soon as I found out I wanted to do that one, I started on them about, I want an M16. You know, I don't want to just go into this red zone every day with a little freaking, you know, pea shooter. And they're like, no, it's inconvenient. You'll have to carry it around. <laughs> right? That was stupid. But they never gave it to me. So 
they tell me you've got a couple of weeks to go. So I'm preparing. And then I've got about a week to go and they call me, Captain Downey, get over here. You're leaving tomorrow. Like, what are you talking about? You're leaving tomorrow. So I left the next day and I'll never forget. There were so many bizarre ass things about this deployment, but as a JAG, you don't go with a, with a unit. You're just one person. They stick on a plane. So you have no friends. You have nobody really with you. You, no. your entire legal office is still back home doing wills. So they have no insight into what the hell you're about to experience. I don't know anybody who's done this, right? Yeah. I just know I'm getting ready to do this thing. Well, by the time we get to like Kuwait, it's five women. <laughs> it's me. My, it's myself. It's another female Jag. And it's, three female paralegals, all Air Force, and we're our little contingent of people that are getting ready to go to the embassy to go do this job, which was mm -hmm. a trip, right? Well, and we get there and another female lawyer shows up. So it turns out there's three female Jags in this little bunch. And we loved that. We thought that was hella cool. Our personal security detail hated that. You know, not, <laughs> not only... Right. Not only did he have to risk his lives for a bunch of lawyers, they're a bunch of Air Force lawyers and they're a bunch of <laughs> and one of them did. Yeah, well, like, it was not, these were not happy Navy MA1s that I had guarding me. So <laughs> the uh, we get there and they bring us up to Camp Victory there. And they're like, there's these three different parts of Task Force 134. There's this board. And the board stays up here at Camp Victory and they review all the files of all the people we arrest and they decide whether they should go like in a drawer and we should ignore them or if they should go to the court or if they should go to some other board of board to possibly be released. Right. So those are the three possible outcomes. All but one of those jobs are you stay in the office. So one of them, you stayed up at Camp Victory and were relatively safe. And the other one you stayed at the embassy and really other than what was happening at the embassy in terms of mortar attacks, you were relatively safe. You didn't have to go to the red zone. I was going to go to Central Criminal Court of Iraq. And the appeal of that for me was very specific, though it had the five days a week of traveling to the red zone. It also had the, in my mind, the possibility of the most justice, you know, mm -hmm. because you're going to bring the case to court. And if they're not guilty, they get let out. If they're guilty, they get prosecuted. They get out of the jail. Like in my brain, there was a system of justice. And so I wanted to be part of that. Yes. Well, <clears throat> they send us all to the embassy and I get to my office. And the very first day I walk in and they hand me this file, this big file. It's Captain Downey, you're doing juvenile cases. This is for you. And I has nothing on it. And I open it up and it's all these autopsy photos of a blown up Marine. Mm -hmm. And what's awful about it to this day for me is that it's clear he had all his body armor on because that was all that was left. Mm, wow. And so you knew in that moment that your body armor really, <laughs> you know, like, it's not going to protect it, you it, from a blast explosion. or a roadside. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and so you, it was like, here you go. Here's your introduction. Mm. And they take us to court and it's the, they load us all up 
and they bring us in these convoys, basically, which up-armored suburbans mostly, you know, full body armor, full personal security detail. I didn't know why I had one initially. They, <clears throat> you drive like a lunatic, wrong side of the road, 100 miles an hour, over to the green door, they called it. And then you waited for the army to clear you. And then you had to be led through this field and this field of palm trees where you couldn't see the other side, but you know, if somebody wanted you to be dead, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. So you kind of had to go through that and lead you up these three flights of metal stairs. And when you come out, you're in a cage and that's the cage they keep the prisoners in. And when you come out of the cage on the wall are thousands of fingerprints because the prisoners roll their fingerprints on the wall after they get fingerprinted. And then you come into the building and they bring you into these little courtrooms, which are really just offices. And it becomes clear from watching that there's no system of justice whatsoever. The judge is Iraqi, the American witnesses, which is usually like the Marine who did the arresting, will say what he says. He has no system necessarily to even remember who's who. There's really no identification system. There's no use of any sort of evidence other than testimony. The only testimony they listen to is that of the accused person. The defense lawyer does not speak or speak to the accused person. Hmm. The testimony given by American witnesses is unsworn because they use the Quran and there's no nothing for Americans to sign on. The testimony of the American witnesses is written in, by a scribe in Arabic on parchment and then wow. signed by the American witness, even though they look at you and say, am I supposed to sign this? And you're like, yes. Mm -hmm. And the judge doesn't want to see the evidence. And halfway through, he stops and starts interviewing the accused person who denies it. I was goat herding the sheep. I was in my house. They came and got me and put a hood on my head and drug me over and took pictures of me with their weapons. Yeah. You keep hearing the same story. And this is 95% of the story is I was in my house and they hooded me and they took me to the weapons. And you're listening to this. And so this is what I started to do five days a week. Well, I had some initial questions like, is there a law book? Hmm. Yeah. What's the law? There was no law book ever provided to me while I was there. I do not know what the law was that I was prosecuting these people under. Mm -hmm. I would write terrorism and a blurb of what I could understand from the file. And mm -hmm. the court would decide what the charges were. I would try to find out what happened on a case or where a person went or investigate it further. And the files would disappear back into Netherlands. You only had the file for a brief period of time with no way to confirm or investigate or anything like this. Mm -hmm. And there was no way, like I said, to identify them. Tune in next week for Volume 2. Listeners, we here at the Foxhole Podcast are so grateful for your continued support and listens. 
Because we love you, we've made you a special discount code for our upcoming play, The Ninth Door. The discount code ROGER takes $10 off the $20 ticket price. So remember, if you're in L.A. this October, come by The Ninth Door and remember that discount code ROGER.